Over the week of the retreat, we've given an ongoing emphasis to really developing an attitude of kindness in our practice towards ourselves, but also as a base of relating to everything that comes into our world. It is one of the very central pillars of the path. And this evening I'd really like to address another aspect, or we might say manifestation, of that very profound kindness, which is really central to this path. And that is compassion. To understand, to explore, to have a sense of relationship not only to the word, but to what that word really means within ourselves as a way of meeting the realities of our own life, our body, our mind, and as a way, of course, of meeting the world and everything that is held within the world. Now, it is often, it is taught that compassion is the very essence and spirit of a path of awakening, a path of cultivation. That any that any path that really has this dedication to freedom, to liberation, really holds within it equally the quality of compassion. And it's interesting because wisdom and compassion are sometimes seen as being two separate aspects of the path, and in my understanding, they're really not separate at all. In fact, sometimes it's said that wisdom and compassion are like the two wings of a bird balancing each other. But say my understanding is a little bit different, that wisdom and compassion are always interwoven, they're, they're interlaced with one another. That genuine compassion really needs wisdom, and genuine wisdom really needs compassion that they develop in the same place. Now, earlier on in the retreat, uh, John spoke about um, Dukkha and the origins of Dukkha. Now, just as every spiritual story really begins with an individual story, so too, to, to a very large extent, does every spiritual path, every path of awakening, really begin with this understanding, the willingness to understand what dukkha or what suffering is. It's a motivating point. To understand what it is, to understand its causes. But of course the other two pieces are equally important. To really understand what is the end of suffering and what is the path to its end. This is all the composite of a path of awakening and insight. Now wisdom, compassion are interwoven, I think, in every step of our path, in every step of our journey, um, to understand and to find the ways, actually, to heal suffering. And also this path is not just an inner understanding, but this path very much has the aspect of embodiment. 
to understand what it means, not only what compassion means, but to look at what the implications of that are in our life, what it is like really to live in the light of compassion, to be guided by compassion, to be inspired by compassion, to be dedicated to compassion. As really a central motivation and a central aspiration of our path. Okay, I'd like to read to you one of the um, actual dedications from uh, the Mahayana teacher. It says, May I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. May I be a boat or a bridge for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a lamp for those who need light. May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. May I be a doctor and a medicine, and may I be the nurse for all ailing beings in the world until everyone is healed. It's a lofty aspiration. Now, compassion begins really in the very same place that for most of us, our journey begins. Um, in an awareness of unease, something lacking, suffering, torment. But it's more than this, you know, because we can be aware of suffering without really actually discerning the understandings that are held within suffering and then we just suffer. But if we really discern the understanding that is held within suffering, that is where we have the motivation and the aspiration to feel suffering. Now part of the awareness or the understanding of pain or suffering is also an understanding that not all suffering can be fixed or avoided. This calms some of the agitation that is often one of our reactions to suffering. How do I get rid of it? How do I fix it? How do I make it different than it is? I think another of the <coughs> understandings that is really invited is to understand that suffering is not necessarily a mistake or a personal failure. Now that actually also heals sometimes a lot of the self-judgment and blame that can be one of our reactions to suffering. I should be a better person. You know, I shouldn't be like this. Um, you know, that I'm, it, it's somehow my fault. You know, I, I've seen people in practice even when they make pain in their bodies. Somehow they have the idea that it's their fault, that they've done something wrong. But I think if we can actually really just settle and just have a, a real willingness and openness to explore suffering, pain, and satisfactory, then the question that can arise from that awareness is really how suffering can be healed in ourselves and in the world. How can suffering be responded to? How can it be embraced? Or even what does it even mean? to heal suffering or to bring it to an end. You know, because this is actually the third noble truth, that there is an end to suffering. 
And what, what does that even mean in our lives, in our, in our practice and how we meet the world? I think these are the kind of timeless questions of really every spiritual path and of every life. In Pali, the word for compassion is karuna, or the trembling heart, a heart that can tremble in the face of something. Now clearly what is being described or pointed to here is that compassion is not just a feeling or an emotion, but it describes a very awake and a very open, spacious, unshakable heart. It seems paradoxical. The heart that can tremble and the heart that can be unshakable. Now deeply, compassion also is deeply rooted in the very keen awareness of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. It is also deeply rooted in an understanding of the emptiness of all views of self and other. Compassion is not a destination, I would say. I think it is a practice. It's not a noun. It is a verb. I think it is true to say that compassion is probably the most meaningful embodiment of emotional maturity and freedom. Interesting that Dalai Lama said that if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. It seems to me that for the heart to tremble, the very first prerequisite is actually the need to be awake, the need to be present, the need to be aware, the need to be connected. And for us to really learn the arts and the skills of being steadfast in the face of suffering, it requires a willingness to stay close, to stay near, not to turn away from, not to flee from, not to reject. Now in the path of mindfulness, as we've explored it this week, there's been an encouragement to contemplate our bodies, to contemplate the body, internally and externally, to contemplate the story of our body, to contemplate the story of all, all bodies, to contemplate feeling internally and externally, to contemplate our minds internally and externally, and we to contemplate the life of all minds, to contemplate our hearts internally and externally to contemplate the life of all hearts. Now, to me, the way that I read these instructions in the Sadhguru Sutta is that it really is an encouragement towards intimacy. It's an encouragement towards intimacy with ourselves, but it is equally an encouragement, actually, to reach beyond the boundaries of our own individual story. Certainly to know our story well and to know that our story is truly a microcosmic view of all stories and of all life. I don't know if any of you have ever come across this 
six degrees of separation theory. And it's it's a, I found it so touching when I came across this. It, it, this suggestion that through no more than five relationships in our life, we are actually related to every single person in the world. It's a phenomenal idea. You know that you know my brother who's married to this person who had this mother who had a cousin over here. You know and that. There's no more than five relationships in our life that are connected to all beings in this world. Actually, more than connected, related. My cousin may not be the person I always want to be related to. You can imagine it. But this whole kind of contemplation is really a nudge towards understanding our interconnectedness and our interdependence, the encouragement to see ourselves in others and to see others in ourselves. And simply to learn really to be steadfast then in the magnitude, the very magnitude of pain, of suffering, of unease that is held within all these stories. Now, what does it mean to contemplate internally and externally? Well, what I'm offering is only a view because this is the subject of endless debate. But to me, it seems, you know, another line is that the world is not made of atoms, but the world is made of stories. And, you know, when we explore our own being here, we see that we are really all unique in many ways. Our story is unique to us. Yet in our unique story, there are universal themes that run through them. That reflect all stories. When we think of the story, our own story and some of the things we've been asked to meet, the way we may in our life have suffered at times through rejection or blame, the heartache of loneliness or despair. If we think of the story of our bodies, the times of illness or pain or aging, some of the pain we might be meeting right now. We think of the story of our minds, with all the things our mind can do, the lovely and the unlovely. Then if we just think about everything within our story, even as we've met it just this week, and then even just to expand your awareness a little bit to everybody in this room, the people on either side of you, in front of you, behind you, do you imagine that anyone has been untouched by those same adversities and hardships? Is there even one person who doesn't know what it means at times to be lonely or to struggle or to be afraid? Is there even one person exempt from pain or illness? Is there even one person in this room who will not die? It's interesting in some of the ways that compassion practice is actually taught. Sometimes it's taught just to bring into mind 
someone you know who is elderly, who is nearing the end of their life, who is having to bear many of the things that aging brings with it, just to focus on that one story. Then to expand your awareness out and to just think of all of the aging people in this world in this moment. To reflect on one person who you know who is ill at this moment or heartbroken. Just to really connect with that. And then to expand that awareness out and just to imagine or be aware of the countless people in this world and that in this moment who are being asked to meet the same painfulness. It's a story of life. I mean, sometimes, you know, when we reflect upon the universal story, it's not in any way a, a, an endeavor to diminish or lessen our own story, but really to understand the tapestry of suffering in a way the size of the clock. John spoke the other night of the story of Kisa Bukhami, who searched in vain to bring back a mustard seed from the house where no one had ever died. But you know, we could expand that story. Could we imagine ourselves being able to bring back a mustard seed from the house who'd never, a, a, a family who'd never experienced heartache, struggle, loss, fear? We would face the same futility. When we speak of suffering, we often relate it just to pain or anguish, but of course suffering is actually a much broader word than that, a much bigger word than, word than that. It also includes actually the suffering of ignorance and confusion. Not just physical pain or emotional pain, but the suffering of ignorance and confusion. This is something that compassion is also asked to meet. And we can understand that too in our own lives. I'm sure all of us can recall times when we have spoken or acted out of greed or rage or fear or hatred, hatred. And when we look at the world around us too, we see exactly the same thing happens. But again, this is not the whole story of compassion either. Because the story of compassion, too, really asks us to understand that we live in a world where all beings are actually united in their longing to um, be unhurt, to be unharmed, to be accepted, to be loved, to be free from fear, to be cared for. And I think this kind of an understanding of interconnectedness asks us to see that anger, terror, even the ignorance of others is maybe not just theirs, but as ours. Just as loneliness and heartache is not just ours, but also theirs. It's almost as if we're all part, I think, of a single organism. Being born, living, breathing, dying and really doing our best to find our way to peace and to happiness and to freedom. 
It is this great, I think, very deep understanding of interconnectedness that is the ground of compassion and the inspiration to really embody that compassion. Milarepa was a great, great yogi of the past and said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another, wherever it exists, as part of this body? Now, out of this, I think, out of this understanding of interconnectedness, there arises a very natural, a very wise compassion. It's very good in some very simple realities. There is suffering. There is a trembling of the heart. There is the instinctive reaching out, a gesture of unconditional compassion, a response that is not passive, and it's not filled, not doesn't pass through these filters of, you know, worthy suffering and unworthy suffering, or, you know, what will the result of compassion be, or am I good enough, or is this a kind of suffering that deserves compassion? Within this kind of acknowledgement this tenderness of compassion. There is actually no blame. There is no uh, demand for results. There are no hierarchies. Now the Dalai Lama has said that compassion is the radicalism of our time. And I've, I've reflected a lot on, on you know, what that might mean. What is it that is radical? about compassion. And my understanding that one of the ways that compassion is radical it is really swimming against the tide of self-protection. And in some ways self-cherishing, I'm not using that, you know, in a kind of deriving way. But we see how strongly the desire to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, is so central in our life and central in the lives of many in this world. And actually how much fear and cruelty comes out of that impulse. You know, and compassion is not always so easily encouraged, I think, in our time, you know, because it, you see how culturally, you know, we, we get encouraged, you know, to look out for yourself, nobody else is going to look out for you, you know, kind of turn away from suffering, pretend it's not happening, you know, um, you know, pursue as many pleasant experiences as you can, you know, get as many pleasant experiences as, as you can. Now, at this point, as, 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 and sometimes we, you know, we really equate happiness just with having more and more pleasant experiences or exciting experiences even. But it's important to understand that there's something very human in the impulse to turn away from the unpleasant. You know, don't, don't think we should sort of make that into a sort of error. You know, you, you put your hand near a hot stove, you know, and there's that very human response to, to pull away. You know, there's something incredible, you know, you, you have a pain in your body and there's a, a very human response to, of course, want it to go away. You know, it would be strange not to. 
But I think the difficulty that we get into is that we actually see that ha our happiness is somehow going to be born of our success in getting rid of suffering. And then we're really in a battle with life. Then we're really kind of waging a sort of war with our life. And the ground for compassion to arise gets really muted and, and, and uh, becomes inaccessible in that struggle that we have with life just to, to get rid <laughs> of suffering. You see, the birth of compassion, as I understand it, really lies in our willingness to actually accept that it's human, to want suffering to go away, and yet still find the willingness to embrace it. Those two together. Now the whole kind of development or evolution of self-consciousness and self-protection and all the anxiety that arises from that. Again, this is a very human condition. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to feel bad about. But to understand, to really understand, that to really understand that our, our kind of attachment and, and preoccupation with kind of defending ourselves just doesn't make us happy. So it doesn't make us happy. In fact, it often encourages, it, it often causes us to suffer. Now, compassion is not an encouragement to move from self-protection to self-loathing. <laughs> and then I think that's a kind of a reaction that we can have. It's not a, a, an encouragement towards moving towards blaming or shaming ourselves you know, for being self-centric or self-preoccupied. But it's really the willingness to just ask ourselves to look fearlessly at much of the kind of self-defending, protecting that goes on in our life. And just ask ourselves, does it lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? You know, it's really just the encouragement to ask that. And it's out of that willingness to really look into suffering that I think that there arises a capacity to hold some of these activities of self-protection and self-defending just a little bit more lightly and really in a sense to widen our circle of concern and to be deeply concerned with the well-being of all beings to know very deeply that my happiness is actually directly linked to your happiness that my fear is really directly linked to your fear and that my freedom is really knitted together with yours. A friend of mine, Stephen Batcher, I think he was in the song of the he said that yes, she cannot awaken for ourselves, pursue awakening for ourselves. That we can only participate in the awakening of the world. The depth of happiness in our life, seems to me, is equal to the depth of our sense of relatedness, both inwardly and outwardly. And said, he said, I found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. That the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at 
Compassion really as a verb is a way of countering our tendency to fear or resist or avoid suffering. We might say that compassion is cultivating the tendency to turn towards suffering. Dogen once asked his teacher, he says, what is the mind of compassion? And his teacher answered, it is a soft and flexible mind. Dogen asked, what is this soft mind? His teacher answered, it's the willingness to let go of your body and mind. <coughs> I think it's a real question that we explore in our practice. How do we cultivate this soft, receptive mind? Part of it is just acknowledging the way things are. That we, we sit in the center of a world, in the world in which all suffering appears. And that just happens actually to be where we are right now. And every human being, every living being, sits in the same place with us, in the center of the same world. We sit with all that is lovely, but we also sit with all the anguish and the pain and the hardship that any being can meet in their life. And we know that all beings in the world are doing just the same thing right now. And it's actually where the Buddha sat when he sat under the Bodhi tree. Remember someone said, he said, the Buddha doesn't sit on the edge of suffering. He doesn't sit in the suburbs of suffering. Buddha sit in the downtown of suffering, Main Street. It's not as if we have to go somewhere to cultivate compassion. We're actually already there. I mean, we already just need, really, to open our hearts to the simple truth of that. Now again, this too is where compassion is really radical because we are asked really to find the fearlessness of a Buddha. And that doesn't mean that there is no fear, there's plenty of fear. But to find a heart that is vast enough, that we're not overwhelmed by that fear or get lost in it. In a fear can be there. <clears throat> without us taking it up and running with it and closing down. Fear can be there without us becoming fearful. And the, you know, the danger is that of course fear and self-protection are wed together in some sort of terrible marriage. And we see what happens in that marriage. How we can and fear and self-protection and live together just become more suspicious and mistrustful, more blame and hatred. We certainly see that in our world right now. How it solidifies the story yourself and other, the endless alienation and conflict. And of course, just as alienation begins with us, it also begins to end with us. In the just as resistance and pushing away begins with us, so does its ending begin with us. And that is the radical act of compassion. I think to renounce the pathways of alienation, to renounce the thoughts and the words of blame and Ill, Ill will, to connect again with a mind that is soft, receptive and wise. The story <clears throat> I listened to a monk, Tibetan monk, speaking a few years ago. 
as a monk who spent 21 years in, in prison in much of time in solitary confinement he was beaten, he was tortured and daily his life was threatened and yet he emerged after those 21 years and in over recent years he's met many people and spoken many times about the torment of those years and the one thing that's so immediately evident when I met him is how intact his heart was and he didn't speak about revenge or hatred and, and one time the Dalai Lama was speaking with this monkey and he asked him he said was there a time in your life was ever truly in danger was there a time when you were in danger of losing your he said there were many times when I was in danger of losing my life, yet that my time of greatest danger were the moments when I was in danger of losing my compassion for my jailers. Now it seemed to suggest that he felt many things other than compassion, who wouldn't? And yet despite the range of those feelings, it was his actual commitment to compassion that enabled him not only to survive, to do something more than survive, but to really find a depth of aliveness and, and fearlessness and steadiness in that time. And someone wrote about, someone else wrote about their meeting with this man. And I said, an appearance almost of timidity on the first meeting. A voice so quiet it might be a whisper. He could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze. A gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything. Seen beyond the suffering he has experienced. Beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. Now again, I would warn against sort of, you know, kind of romanticizing people like this, so imagining that they are someone of, of a different species. You know, someone, uh, you know, embodying something impossible for us. I think so many times that the people who deeply inspire us in our lives are not of a different species. But they are people actually who have a very profound faith in the power of compassion and a very profound inner freedom that they have nurtured. But compassionate heart is certainly soft, flexible, receptive, vulnerable, but also needs to be wise and discerning. There are at times we do feel in danger of becoming lost in suffering. I know many of you here, you know, work in professions and with people where you meet a lot of suffering and anguish. And I, and I know it's very easy in those situations to, to feel coarser at times when we just feel in danger of being submerged or lost by the amount of anguish that is met every day. And I think the soft and the the soft and receptive heart of compassion really also needs the vigilance and the wisdom and the protection of mindfulness. 
anger, fear, blame, anxiety. These can and do arise in the face of suffering. Sometimes we're able to surround them with equanimity and acceptance and spaciousness, allowing them to arise and pass. But we also need to know how to listen inwardly and to know when the most wise act, the most compassionate act, is actually sometimes to step back and to say no. We need to know when our hearts and our minds and our body are sending us signals of distress, asking us to listen and really saying that it's time to pause and to rest and to reclaim the steadiness of our own hearts. Remembering that we are training ourselves in the compassion, yes, it is boundless and unconditioned, but it is also a training. This one to look just briefly at what it seems to me and in my experience. Where compassion most easily falters. And I, I think there are two areas where compassion most easily falters. I think one of the one of the areas where compassion can easily falter is in this rocky ground of the seeming impossibility of ever bringing suffering to me. And I think the other area of compassion really is the faulted is actually in the face of ignorance. When we are faced with those who misuse or abuse or who perpetrate suffering, who inflict harm upon others. The impossibility of healing suffering, of healing all suffering, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the other night I spoke about a woman in the refugee camp in Darfur. And of course, it's only one story. You know, if we just open our eyes to the magnitude of pain in this world, it seems unbearable. And the choices, the impossible choices, so many people are being asked to make on a daily basis. You know, what is, what is it like for uh, a refugee from Sierra Leone to face a choice of stepping into some leaky boat and to make drown, might likely drown on their way to Europe, or stay home and starve. You know, what is it like for a child to, to pick up a gun rather than see their own family killed? You know, what is it like for a mother in Thailand to sell her daughter into prostitution? so that she can feed the rest of her family. I mean, we in our lives are often not faced with those kind of choices. And the millions of people in our world are faced with those choices every day that seem simply impossible. And we're asked in the midst of this kind of suffering that we see, you know, of terror and drought and tragedy, we're asked to imagine what it looks like to bring about the end of all of suffering. And to act as if it's possible to do so. Now, many of these situations in life, you know, can seem removed, although many of you who work with people with a great deal of pain, they don't seem so removed. And I think we all know that empathy is actually really the training ground of compassion. 
And it is one of the great gifts of a human heart, the capacity to have empathy. Now, on one level, we can never actually, of course, experience another person's experience. We can't feel their feelings. We can't live in their heart or life. But we know, actually, we do live with the heart and the mind. We know we live with the heart with its capacity for hatred and for love, for fear and longing and freedom. And then the vow of compassion in the Bodhisattva tradition. It said, although suffering is endless, I vow to bring it to an end. Suffering, sometimes for the anguish in our world, it seems so intractable. You know, we can't trace its beginnings. We can't imagine its end. In our own lives, we can face situations of difficulty which feel equally intractable. Difficult people, obsessions that linger for years, chronic illnesses, you know, sometimes I think in the face of that seeming impossibility, sometimes people speak about a kind of compassion fatigue. And I think it happens not just because the, the suffering seems so huge or so impossible to end. I think compassion fatigue also happens because we just want to fix it too much. That we have too much of an agenda that there's a kind of shadow side to compassion, which is, you know, how do I make this go away or a resistance or blame? I'm looking for a solution. But I think really, I think more we look at compassion, we see that compassion, genuine compassion actually asks for nothing. It doesn't ask for anything. It's not just to be there enough just to be there. And it asks us to act and to live in a way as if it is truly possible to heal all of the suffering in this world and to do that in the face of the seemingly impossible. In taking our seat in compassion, finding the willingness to listen to the cries of the world is to gently align ourselves with a real inner commitment to protection and to healing, protecting our own hearts from despair and ill will and resignation. And to do this, we actually learn to lessen the mountain of suffering in the world. And we do this really to protect all beings. And the second place where compassion really falters, and, and I think this is the hardest place, really the hardest it's in the face of those who perpetrate violence or suffering, in the face of those who abuse or kill, or even in the face of those who in much less harmful ways may, you know, judge us or dismiss us or accuse us or ignore us. It's really, that's really the hardest place. It, it often doesn't even feel like compassion is, is the right response. There isn't a right response. Oh, I said. You know, once, once the Dalai Lama said, you know, um, of course we need to be touched by the injustice in the world. We need to be disturbed by it. But if we, if we can't be disturbed by it, then there's something missing in our sense of connectedness. 
for me, we feel angry. But the Dalai said, anger in the face of injustice can be the, be the starting point of powerful and altruistic gestures of healing. In the Vasudhya Naga, there's one of their commentaries on the suttas, so there's a way in which the cultivation of compassion is, is encouraged. And it starts by bringing into your mind, your heart, someone who is suffering, who's really quite innocent. You know, a, a child of cancer, someone who's very elderly, who's really struggling. To, to just bring into your heart someone who's in the midst of great hardship and adversity in their life, in a situation which is really no blame. You know, it's a kind of blame of suffering. And just, just to hold that image in your heart. It might be a person who's caught in a, in a tragedy of, of nature, in a drought, a flood. And it's really asked to just stay with the blameless for a while. Just to really have a sense of tenderness and, and empathy for that person's struggle. And then, surprisingly, the next step in the practice is to take your attention to someone who causes pain. Someone who causes harm. Someone who, acting out of ignorance, really inflicts pain upon others. And to see, explore the possibility of embracing in some ways ignorance. Understanding how much suffering is born of ignorance. And to really understand not only in others but also in ourselves, suffering that arises from ignorance is actually two twofold. There's the suffering born of acts and words of anger. But there is also the suffering of the mind, the suffering of the, the mind that is lost in ignorance. How it has surrendered any meaningful or deep connection with life at all. How it has opened the door to a tormented mind. This, uh, compassion in the face of suffering that is born of ignorance, it's not just receptive and fluid and, and, and vulnerable. It is also courageous. It is also finding the, the courage to say no to the causes of suffering. Which is actually what an ethical life is. Protecting those who have no protection. Being a friend to those who have no friends. Compassion is certainly not a way of condoning the unwholesome or condoning suffering. But it is really reaching out to protect where protection can be offered. I think we need to know that our compassion, actually, I think, in this path, needs to, needs to be equal in size to the ignorance that we meet in the world, both inwardly and outwardly. Rio Kennel said, Oh, that my monk's roads were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. I used to argue a lot with my teacher about this aspect of compassion, about bringing compassion to those who, who seem to cause pain. And he was so insistent, really. You know, I said that. But he was like, why do you have to tell me? I'm not really going to be chuntering and mumming about 
will really feel com- bring the bows into the heart of compassion. And he, he was so, so insistent, and he would just say, swallow the blame. Swallow the blame. It doesn't mean to condone or to justify, but to, to really acknowledge that my blame was a way of my refusal to actually understand the suffering of ignorance. <coughs> I think compassion can acknowledge that ignorance is as much part of the mandala of suffering as a broken heart or an alien body. And a compassion that has no boundaries can acknowledge this and actually meet and know how to meet the suffering boy of ignorance. Isn't that Dalai Lama said he's the Dalai Lama once said, I said, I can't pretend to practice compassion all the time. But it gives me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside, I realize how valuable and beneficial and transforming it is. That is all. And sometimes in the face of ignorance, we can begin to discover a depth of compassion we actually never even knew it was possible for us. He's saying that true prayer becomes possible when all doors are closed and our hearts have turned to stone. Now the Buddha speaks very much in terms of speaks about freedom, he speaks about freedom in many, many different ways. And one of the ways he speaks, speaks about freedom is the liberation of the heart through compassion. The liberation of the heart through compassion. Understanding the wisdom, the freedom found within it. Cultivating a vast and spacious heart that can tremble in the face of suffering and that can respond and that is rooted in the dedication to healing all sorrow and suffering wherever it exists. I'd like to end with a poem. It says, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night with the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go down and lie down where the wood drake rests in its beauty, in the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the dead-lying stars waiting with their light. And for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.